0: Welcome to the Third Sector podcast. I'm Rebecca Cooney, features and analysis writer.
1: And I'm Emily Burt, editor of Third Sector, the UK's leading publication for the voluntary and not-for-profit sector. Each month we're delving a little deeper into some of the conversations being had in our community, learning more about exciting innovations and probing some of the issues we're facing.
0: This month we'll be looking at what impact the impending recession could have on charities We'll be talking to Daniel Flusky, Head of Policy and External Affairs at the Chartered Institute of Fundraising, about what's likely to happen to fundraising. To Adela Warley, Chief Executive of Charity Comms, about what effect it will have on charities' ability to campaign and advocate for their causes. And Rita Chada, Chief Executive of the Small Charities Coalition, on how her organisation's members will be affected.
1: And as ever, we'll be bringing you our coronavirus care package. Good things, interesting things in the sector that have grabbed our attention this month.
0: But first, What's the biggest screw up you've ever made at work?
1: Well, I can't possibly comment on uh, my career at Third Sector for that because I have never made a mistake ever um, working on this magazine. I'm aware this is a hell of a question to ask your boss. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I can't possibly comment on my current position, but I uh, can talk about other jobs that I've done. And I think the liveliest job I ever really worked in was when I was a waitress during my university days. And um, I think probably the biggest uh mistake i ever made there was failing to notice after some customers who'd been out for a meal with us uh tipped me 2000 pounds um after Oof. paying for their meal and i think w- the mistake they'd made was that um they tried to tip 20 And the zero button got stuck and I did not notice until I put it through the till, which meant the payment had been processed and they had left the shop. And I had to um, run out of the shop, chase them down the road and say to them, listen, I know that my service was probably really good, but this is perhaps too generous. (laughs) And then we had to call the bank and get it sorted out. We did get it back to them um, within kind of 12 hours. But it was just that moment where, you know, your stomach drops and you think, oh, no. So that I, I think that's right up there for me, which means that I have enormous, enormous sympathy for MenCap, who have really been through the ringer with a very mm. similar story in recent months. Tell us all about it, Rebecca.
0: So this was uh, yeah, in particular to uh, workers at a MenCap charity shop who um, accidentally deposited more than ninety thousand pounds into the bank account of a woman who'd asked for a refund. Um, And um, unfortunately, this woman and I, I kind of have a bit of sympathy with this woman as well. Uh, uh, She ended up going to court over it because she transferred she this money drops into her account, and she immediately starts transferring it to friends and relatives bank accounts. Um, and um, as a result, the charity lost about £30,000. They were able to claw back 60000 of it. Yes, she did end up going to court for it, and she was handed a suspended prison sentence over it. And I, I, I do have some sympathy with her, but also, yeah, it was a charity, and they've lost out on thirty grand as a result of this. But yeah, that, that moment of realising that she's been refunded £90,000 uh, must have been horrifying.
1: I would love to know what the item in the charity shop was that the initial refund was mm. going to be for, you know, I was just thinking, you know, possibly one of the most expensive vases yeah. or, you know, nice sweaters in the world. So, yes, um, a real shame for Mencap there. This is not the kind of environment in which anybody wants to be losing 30 grand. And so hopefully they can recoup the remaining amount of money um, at some stage and best of luck to them.
0: So, yes. So, uh, yes, However, however badly your day is going... At least you haven't done that, I guess.
1: coronavirus pandemic has had a devastating impact on the economy. In the UK, in April alone, GDP shrank by 20.4%. And even though Britain's economic prospects began to bounce back as the restrictions on movement loosened and restaurants reopened and we all, you know, ate out to help out as we were instructed to do, um, it's very likely that the impending in- second wave of the virus will now be undoing that progress. And with the end of the Brexit transition period on the horizon, in case, you know, you'd all forgotten about that, it's still coming. Economists... That thing. Yeah, that thing. um, Economists are warning that Britain's economy is heading for a prolonged recession, which is going to last at least until next spring. Now, the charity sector has already been feeling the economic pain for several months now. 60,000 jobs in the sector are expected to be lost this year, with lockdown making it more difficult to fundraise at the same time as demand goes soaring. So what impact is a recession going to have on charities?
0: Well, I spoke to a number of experts to find out a little bit more about this. Um, first up, we've got Daniel Flusky, Head of Policy and External Affairs at the Chartered Institute of Fundraising. I began by asking him how the 2008 recession had affected fundraising.
2: Well, there's definitely a relationship that you can see between how the economy is performing and uh, in particular levels of household income and... Um, and the amounts of money that people give in donations. Following the financial crash, we did see that there was a dip in the total amount given. I think it came to around just over 10%, 10 11% in the total value of donations. There was a drop. So we saw that that came from two things, really, which was a reduction in the amount of people that gave and those that did give, on average were giving slightly less, but the other way you could kind of flip that round is kind of actually saying during a financial crash which was at that time quite a deep and prolonged recession, that you know charitable giving held up in that we still got around ninety percent of the donations that we would have got in a normal year or or in normal time, so there is a relationship there, but I don't think it's one which you know traditionally would have been catastrophic in terms of when the economy tanks that giving completely falls away that isn't what we tend to see but giving isn't immune to what's happening in the wider economy um, and in the wider context of kind of the experience of people in society and their jobs and their anxieties about their finances or whatever so there is a relationship it's it's not like you can just kind of say this is what happens to donations The the difference in Donations and giving is different for different types of fundraising and for different people. So what you tend to see is that the people that are your more loyal supporters, the ones that are closest to your cause, the ones that are direct debit givers, for example, the ones that uh, come to annual events or are engaged, are the ones that are most likely to keep giving. It's the more one-off cash donations that tend to be more impacted. So it's the kind of more discretionary. Oh, I might give something this month in relate, you know, because I've gone past a charity shop and I pop in, or I see something and it, you know, it happens to inspire me on that day. Those are the ones that tend to be to fall away a little bit because it's a little bit more impulse donation, uh, rather than the ones where you've got a close relationship and that you're a committed supporter. I think we've also seen, and that that the kind of counterpoint to that is, you know, over the last kind of decade or so, we've seen that the value of the gifts is more and more concentrated in the people that are giving. So the latest information that we were seeing from the overall kind of CAF figures and from the NCVO Civil Society Almanac was that. The levels of donations in terms of the amount, overall amount that was given was holding up, but that they tended to come from fewer people. So it's just kind of going to show that the people that are giving, the, the proportion of the population that do give to charities are so important to the future Of our charities because they are the ones that are going to keep the organisations going, the services running, and enable organisations to get through this as much as we can. But I guess, kind of looking back at the last recession, you know, there's a big caveat and a big kind of kicker, which is this isn't a normal recession. Um, You know, this is a recession where at the same time we've got social distancing, where we can't go back to work in a normal way, where we can't fundraise in a a normal way. And it's predicated on a health pandemic rather than a structural fault in the economy. And therefore there are, you know, the the economy is a consequence of a wider problem, a wider and bigger challenging context rather than just dealing with with a recession in itself
0: so we don't think we're going to see the same pattern play out this time.
2: Well, I think we can. in some cases, yes, in some cases, no. You know, it would be easier to a certain extent if it was a normal recession because it would be challenging, but at least we can know what we're playing with and what we're up against. What we're up against at the moment is a recession which where we can't do our normal work. What I'm hearing and what we can see in relation to the response of emergency appeals which tend to have been you know have done quite well in response to things like Captain or Colonel Tom Moore and other other events. It's not that people don't want to give at the moment and that they are suddenly not generous but charities real kind of restricted nature of how they can fundraise at the moment is having a bigger impact than the financial aspect of a recession because I think we're so limited at the moment in terms of how we can ask and how we could fundraise. We can't do the same level of fundraising events. We can't be, you know, kind of gathering around and doing the the community events and doing sponsorship for London Marathon and other things. That's having a bigger impact than the recession at the moment. I don't think everyone will stop giving and that everybody wants to stop giving and actually... Giving to charity has been something which has been held up as a positive thing, which people can do during this pandemic to connect with others, to, you know, help with boredom or anxiety and so on. Hmm.
0: Now, that makes sense. So fundraising is going to continue to be difficult for for quite a while. And at the same time, as we've heard from a lot of charities, demand is increasing and is likely to continue to go up. Um, So what can charities do to maximise income?
2: Well, um, so I think in terms of fundraising, again, around kind of individual giving in the in the main, I think one of the first things I'd say is remember what works. Um, fundraising, great fundraising is based on the knowledge, the skills, the value, the insight, the behaviour that those fundraisers have built up over time and that they have learnt and put into their professional skills and development. And that remains the case now. You know, in some cases, everything has changed but in some cases everything is still the same in that the basis of what makes great fundraising and what inspires people to give the fundamentals are still there so i think one of the first things i'd say is for for fundraisers is have confidence in your abilities have confidence in your skills you know you do have the tools at your disposal to do great fundraising yes it's absolutely difficult out there there are challenges But remember what works and put in place your knowledge and your way of working to get through it. You've got the tools there to make it work. Um, At the same time, you know, I think charities need to respect the insight and the ideas of their fundraising teams. And we know over the past years that the organisations that have tended to be the most successful fundraising charities are the ones that kind of are reporting to invest in their fundraising teams and people. So if you want and need income, you will need fundraisers and you will need those fundraisers there working. And I know that's really challenging because we're talking at a time where lots of organizations are having to look at their structures, to look at what they can afford, to look at the makeup of their to make up of their teams, and inevitably in some cases having to to save costs um and you know reduce staff numbers. But you know, the way to make money and the way to continue to get donations and grow your giving or or sustain levels of giving is not to reduce all of your fundraising teams if you don't have fundraisers you won't make you won't make income i also think there's something which is about although i've kind of said remember what works that doesn't just mean we don't reflect what's happening out there at the moment And that we don't respond to the fact that fundraising through COVID and fundraising through a recession is very different to fundraising, you know, the campaigns that we did last year. So what we do now and over the months ahead has to be responsive. It has to talk to people in the situation that they are in at the moment. So, you know, there's lots of talk at the moment about how people will give or will people give around Christmas appeals. And I think they will. But what they won't respond to is if you just run last year's Christmas campaign again or if you run the Christmas appeal that you started to plan back in March. It's got to be done in a way that resonates when that envelope or when that email hits, that it recognises the situation that people are in. They might be dealing with having lost a job themselves, dealing with directly with the impact of COVID on their health or, you know, be anxious and stressed about their family situation. So charities need to absolutely recognise the situation that our supporters are in and put them first. So some of the great fundraising I've seen over the last few months have been the ones which say, look, We know it's really difficult out there. We value your support so much. We want you to be with us for a long time. If you can't give any more right now, that's okay. You can pause your direct debit. You can change how much you give. You know, let's put that in our fundraising, make it responsive, make it reflect what our supporters are feeling. And you will still raise money. But if we don't recognise that and if we still fundraise as we were last year... It's not going to work. It, work, it won't resonate and it will kind of miss the great supporter engagement that we've been seeing in some cases over the last few months as well.
0: So communication with donors may be all important for fundraising, but what about charities' work advocating on behalf of their beneficiaries? I asked Adela Worley, Chief Executive of Charity Comms, what impact the recession could have on charities' ability to campaign.
3: Well, I mean, I suppose the most obvious um, first thing is that... Um, Charities' ability to fundraise for their campaigning will be affected uh, as people are facing very real financial hardship and difficult decisions. Another one will be that engaging the public, if the public's attention and concerns is elsewhere, then it's it's more difficult to ask them to um, engage and get involved. I think also there may be some impact on getting stories placed in the media and shaping the public discourse um, around the the issues that really matter that can, that charities are working on, and uh, it may be harder to engage MPs and political decision makers as well unless you can uh, you can flow it through the the lens of recession discussion and debate. But what I think the pandemic crisis has shown us is that well in many ways we faced a lot of those challenges over the last six months anyway and charities have very successfully managed to um, reinvent themselves think very carefully about the way that they communicate their work and campaign and that uh, and that actually the public have supported those campaigns as, as seen them as salient and relevant and been incredibly generous with their time and their voice. So I'm, I'm an optimist. I, I'm, I think that there is, there is hope. Mm. So in terms of the, the kind of impact that this will have on charities' ability to communicate
0: with the public, you, you do think the public are still going to be receptive to the issues charities are campaigning on?
3: Absolutely, I do. Um, the issues that people passionately care about haven't changed. They haven't gone away. So, you know, whether that is supporting health, um, whether and mental well-being, whether that's ensuring access to housing or healthy, affordable food, um, access to open spaces, you know, combating loneliness, um, or taking action on climate change, these are all issues that we know people care about, and they want to be part of the solution. So I think the the challenge. And the opportunity for charities is to just find ways of connecting with those um, those public interests and concern, and ways to help them take action, feel empowered that they're making a difference. Because that instinct is remains the same. And is this a moment for charities themselves to that, that they can use to make their value clear, both to the public and to government? It. Absolutely is. Um, We cannot miss this opportunity. It's more important than ever. Uh, uh, Communications are truly the lifeblood of of charities which exist to change the world. And I'm optimistic that they can tell their story. They can engage and empower people so that their cause is better understood and valued. And I think this needs to be done uh, by individual charities for their own cause. Um, But I think it also needs to be done at a a macro, a big picture level as well. I think it needs to be done on behalf of the sector, because uh, I think it's probably fair to say that we went into the pandemic crisis on the back foot as a sector i think we were were and probably still are fairly um misunderstood or not understood at all in in the corridors of power um certainly in the media and and with some some parts of the public as well so there is a really pressing need to confidently Um, tell the story of why why charities matter, what they do, why it makes a difference to people's lived experience and how essential their work is. And that's why I'm really pleased to be working collaboratively with lots of organisations across the not-for-profit sector on the Never More Needed campaign, which is making the case and showcasing what charities do, but also saying, Whilst we welcome the support that the government gave us initially, it isn't enough. That 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 was much much needed, but still more support is needed. So I think making being loud and proud about what the sector does. I, I heard a really beautiful quote from one of my colleagues um, recently, um, Karen uh, at the Charity Finance Group, and she um, she described the um, sector as. Um, she said charities are like bees to the environment they kind of they they're there under the radar doing this amazingly at utterly essential job they they are the oil in the wheels and they and that needs to be preserved because um it's incredibly valuable and so many people's lives depend on the services that that charities bring that's such a lovely image and so clever yeah brilliant so so in spite
0: of there being kind of a looming recession you've got a fairly Positive outlook on on ha- charities' ability to cope with it. This may not this may not be easy, but their ability to cope, you think, is pretty strong.
3: I I certainly don't underestimate the challenge. And you will know better than anyone, Rebecca. Third Sector Daily produces very very depressing news about the the loss of capacity in charities, the redundancies, um, and even if there are no redundancies, there's a lot of re strategising and. Um, and uh, restructuring going on in charitable organisations and again i i i know that that can be really really painful and it it's asking charities to do more with less and that is always really difficult and it's people's passion for their causes and their livelihoods that are at stake here so i don't i really don't underestimate any of that but where i take heart is over the past 6 months I've seen charities rising to all of these challenges. You know, they've responded with urgency. Um, They've worked at speed. They've been prepared to try out new things and test and learn as they go along. They've been flexible with their strategy. They haven't just said, well, we plan to do this and we're going to stick to our guns. They've said, no, what is most needed right now for our members, our supporters, our beneficiaries? Let's focus on that and deliver deliver that to the best of our abilities. I think we've also seen amazing collaborations and partnerships across the sector. And of course, we've seen the rise of digital and uh, whilst not all charities are fully able to take up digital um, and that's that's definitely a training and capacity building um, opportunity as well so i think we have to adopt from a communications perspective we should always be doing this but in these times it's even more important to take an audience-centric approach to really say who are we here for what are we delivering for them and how are we making a difference? And that means regularly listening, you know, not just once a year a survey, but if you can regularly trying to tap into what the people you're there for are thinking and what they need and responding to that and um, a willingness to join up the dots culturally inside our organizations as well to kind of run campaigns where you can convene the whole organization around shared objectives rather than um, kind of competing for um, supporter time and energy Um, so a singular purpose and um, a a confidence and a a willingness to test and learn, I think are some of the things that we've learnt over the last six months and we should definitely be carrying forward. So there are more than 160,000 charities in the
0: UK and 97% of them have an income of less than £1 million a year. So I asked Rita Chowder, Chief Executive of the Small Charities Coalition, whether the recession was likely to have a particular impact on
4: small charities. I think the recession is going to have an impact on everyone and it's already started for small charities in particular I think there's a sense of fatigue there's a sense of isolation and there's a sense of foreboding so definitely it's not just about their survival it's also about their long term sustainability in in trying to understand what they can and what they can't deliver going forward. Hmm.
0: And you said it's it's already having an impact. What are some of the concerns that your members are raising already about the recession?
4: So we've started actually literally this week, started to see the first uh, couple of charities who are officially saying they're closing. Up until now, it's been very much organisations saying they're thinking about it, they're not sure. But I think the end of furlough now coming is, well, this stage of furlough anyway, ending. It means for some organisations, they're thinking we can't carry on. Um, so closures are definitely starting to emerge. We're seeing more organisations thinking about mergers and collaborations. We're starting to see organisations decide quite constructively that they're not going to deliver certain types of services anymore. Um, we've been asking, for example, a lot of questions about winter planning, and there's lots of charities that have kind of saying we're going to mothball for the winter. We went through this once; we can't go through this a second time. So I think a lot of uncertainty, but slowly surely small charities are starting to make very decisive uh, decisions about their future direction.
0: Mm. And it's interesting with charities mothballing obviously for the charity the charity may well survive but that does mean those services won't be available to people who are going to need them over the winter.
4: And I think that's the key issue here as well that it's not just about the closure of this, uh, the the individual charity. It's about the loss of those uh, services to beneficiaries. And especially at this critical time, we're not going to have social workers being able to call the local organisation that has always looked after Mr X and picked up his prescription because that that organisation is no longer going to be around. So what support would you like to see put in place for small charities and for the people they're serving? I think there is so much more that we could do to help small charities and charities in general. Now, the obvious answer is always about money, about the significance of that to make services go forward. And yes, government has forgotten uh, charities. Um, 750 million hasn't even touched the surface of the need and of the scale of change that charities themselves have had to invest in by going online and meeting digital requirements. So money has got to be the key factor. Um, I'm always reluctant to say money's at the forefront of this. But actually, in the current climate, we're not going to get much further if we don't have that hard cash on the table. Other things that government can do, uh, fair play to the Charity Commission. It has been relatively flexible during this period. Um, hopefully it will continue to show a high level of pragmatism and support for the sector. And actually their advice and their guidance at this particular stage has been really, really helpful to a lot of charities. So if they can keep that up and we know we've got a regulator that we can go to and trust and confide in and actually work with, then I think some charities may just hang on a little while longer as well.
3: Hmm.
0: No, that makes a lot of sense. And is there support that perhaps bigger charities could be offering to smaller charities, do you think?
4: Always, there's always good collaborations that can be brokered between a large and small charities. I think the challenge at this stage for a lot of the larger charities is that they're equally struggling, and they're struggling to with bigger numbers and, uh, in the, in a the sense, some really knotted and complex problems about redundancies, assets. Um, whether to liquidise assets or whether to keep them as they are, whether to sell buildings, whether to mothball. I don't think there's a space in the sector at the moment to think creatively. Everybody's still in emergency response. Um, So until we can carve out a safe space where people can talk about where larger charities may need the support of smaller charities now to be their kind of um, tenants or to be their kind of support agents in delivering some of the bigger services, we need that space. We haven't got anywhere in the sector to be able to broker those discussions at the moment.
1: So with the seasons turning and autumn around the corner... Um, Lots of different places already facing local lockdowns and the prospect of a national lockdown to apparently circuit break uh, the pandemic on the way. Um, I'm sure everybody is feeling relatively gloomy at the prospect of the winter season of coronavirus. So as ever, it's important to focus on the cheerful and interesting things as and when you can get them. And once again, we've made a list of innovations or creative things that charities have been doing, which have caught our attention over the past month. So, Rebecca, what have you got? So, first up, we've got the
0: Public Interest News Foundation. So, this is the news that the Charity Commission has granted charitable status to an organisation that supports public interest journalism. Um, which apparently is a kind of first of its kind Um, and um, so it's going to provide grants and leadership training to independent news outlets that produce news that is deemed to be in the public interest Um, and I just think this is a really interesting idea I think it's a really important moment for journalism to be getting that kind of support and I I don't know if you remember like a few years ago um, the Labour Party and Jeremy Corbyn did propose making news outlets into charities and everybody kind of went oh, it's not a good idea if you actually understand journalism mm. or charity law. Um, whereas this feels like quite a good middle ground, actually, um, to sort of offer grants, you know, um, journalism, newspapers are being squeezed at the moment and, you know, are actually providing a really valuable service. So to be able to have charitable grants there to support that training and to give them extra kind of capacity and bandwidth is is amazing. Um, so, yeah, I think this is a really, um, really good news and, and really good news in terms of a sort of, journalism the public really needs to hear about not just kind of you know running kind of click in order to fund it which is something Absolutely. that you know, has been tried in the
1: past and with any luck something like this should really diversify these stories that we are seeing because um as journalists ourselves rebecca and i can attest that things like big investigations big public interest stories the reality is they take a huge amount of time and resource to deliver And so a lot of the time, this does just end up being limited to massive media outlets. And that's a problem because, um, you know, there are only a small number of them who really have the funds to drive into that sort of thing. What I would really like to see from this would be these grants going to, you know, very small, very independent news outlets and organisations, local news and covering the sort of stories and investigations that we don't see from more mainstream uh, media So I'm really, really interested to see how that is going to um, progress. So we'll be watching with interest. Yeah. How about you? What have you got for us? Um, I wanted to boost a story which I read about from our columnist, Zoe Amar, about SignHealth, who are the deaf health charity. Um, and SignHealth have this year, they've set up a digital service, which is called BSL Health Access, and it's helping deaf people to access healthcare information throughout the pandemic. Deaf people already have significantly worse access to healthcare um, because of an overall lack of accessible information and services for people who use British Sign Language. Um, And then with the pandemic, when everybody started to wear face coverings, things got a lot worse. It made lip reading or using BSL a lot harder. Um, And with social distancing, that means that deaf people are now much more likely to be on their own when they're going to health appointments um, and having to deal with that real lack of accessible information by themselves. My point is that Sign Health um, have launched a video relay and interpreting service which gives online access to British Sign Language interpreters so that a deaf person can now contact anyone in a health setting 24 hours a day for free. So they launched this service in April and in the months since they've taken more than 14,000 calls and provided more than 77,000 minutes of British Sign Language interpreter time. So it's a brilliant example of once again a charity pivoting to offer something which is so vital and so valuable through the pandemic. I think it's a great case study, a great project and um, many, many snaps to Sign Health for delivering that at relatively short notice. So thank you very much, guys. Great work.
0: So uh, next for me, we've got uh, the Bristol Beacon, which is the new name for the Colston Hall. So um, we've spoken on the podcast about uh, Colston's statue going in the river. Um, so I grew up just outside of Bristol and uh, the, everything is named after Colston in Bristol. OK, that's a bit of an exaggeration, but there are a lot of things in Bristol named after Colston, um, who was a noted philanthropist and slave trader. And um, it, it's been contentious for a long time that... that uh, the, the fact that he his memory is is so implanted on the kind of fabric of Bristol and particularly this um uh event space uh the Coston hall which is kind of a premier concert venue uh, they do a lot of really interesting stuff there it's a brilliant space and i think they have finally felt free to rename themselves and they've renamed themselves the bristol beacon uh, and they also announced it with a really fantastic um poem commissioned by uh, vanessa kasule who people might have seen she went viral doing a poem about costa statue going in the river And it's just uh, performed by different people from around Bristol. And it's just a really, really lovely, good news story. They're kind of striking out in a really positive way and kind of um, moving on from what has been a really troubled legacy um, into kind of a a new and exciting future. And I think they've just done it. The marketing's been so positive. Um, It's just been a really, really interesting example of, 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 yeah, looking forward instead of back
1: i think it's it's very interesting to see how this sort of uh engagement with colonial legacies is going to evolve over the next 6 months we've seen some very interesting moves on this as well from the national trust who recently published a report examining um the legacy and the history of some of their properties around colonialism and slavery and they put out this report saying that they felt you know it was very important that they were starting to examine Um, their the history of their properties in a more nuanced way um, and acknowledging that in the past they've only delivered the kind of stories around these these buildings through a very sort of narrow narrow lens and they want to start looking at how they can open that out and look at these places in a more real way so I think that's fascinating and then on the flip side of this the government has recently written to a lot of cultural institutions and galleries threatening to withdraw funding from them um, if they make decisions which are, quote-unquote, motivated by activism or politics. Um, so Culture Secretary Olive Dowden has said <laughs> to big galleries and museums that they need to continue to act impartially in line with their publicly funded status. Now, I think that is... a uh, a pretty questionable thing to say to museums um i don't know what your thoughts are on that rebecca um but it's interesting that the that this is the line the gov well is it interesting is it unexpected that this is the line the government's choosing to take probably not but i will be interested to see how these um kind of institutions react to this uh shot across their bows. Hmm. i i think it
0: It feels like a a fundamental misunderstanding of the words art, charity, you know, museum discussion, like so many different things that that are within those remits, within the remit of these organisations, fundamentally rely on activism, politics. The act of putting something in a glass case and saying this is worth looking at and worth preserving and worth talking about as an example of the era it came from is political. Uh, Mm. And I'm... and. it's, I'm just—I—I'm I, not sure I buy the idea that keeping, that continuing to venerate the same things is somehow neutral. I don't know that there was a great danger of museums chucking their artifacts out. Right. Uh, particularly, I mean, not to not to throw shade at the British Museum too much, but I—I um, I feel like if they chucked out everything that was to do with colonialism out they wouldn't have a lot left to show people Mm -hmm. um and you know even even the colston statue okay went in the river they've now fished it out of the river and are exhibiting it complete with paint and graffiti you know the the plans are to exhibit that in bristol at at the bristol museum so i don't know that this was something that charities were or that, that, that museums were looking to do
1: Right. Well, I mean, in fact, the British Museum has come out and said we're not throwing anything away. And I think it's at, your observation is absolutely right. If the British Museum, you know, threw their artefacts out or, you know, better yet, returned them to the people who they were originally lifted from, um, there wouldn't be really anything left in there. So... That's one thing. But the British Museum has come out and said we were never going to throw anything away. What they are saying they're now going to do is they're looking to recontextualize the uh, colonial, many, many colonial artefacts that they have in there. I'm interested to see how far that extends, I guess so not just busts of slavers but what about all the other stuff how are you going to reframe that narrative if that is indeed what you're going to do so i just think it's a very it's an interesting moment and i'm certainly curious to see how these institutions do choose to respond to it Mm.
0: yes why exactly do we have the elgin marbles again maybe we should have a conversation about that um Mm. all these mummies were not discovered you know on the plains of salisbury were they um (laughs)
1: absolutely not. Anyway, so we'll 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 watch watch with interest monitor that with interest. Uh, over to you Emily. What else have you got for us? This is my last uh, story, but I think it's a really, really great one. So this shout out goes to Rent Start. Um, Rent Start are a charity based in Walton-on-Thames that lets out houses and flats to people who have been made homeless. Um, They've been working locally in the area for 20 years and every year they support about 150 local homeless people. The charity works with local landlords who have helped them to build a property portfolio of 130 beds. It's a great initiative. It's a great organisation. A couple of months ago, they opened a high streets based lettings agency for homeless people on the grounds that if you are homeless, you are just as entitled to walk into a lettings agency and to be treated as fairly as everybody else. So through this agency, which is placed really, really prominently on the high street, like any other kind of shop, Rentstar is looking to remove barriers that prevent homeless people from gaining access to the private rented sector in a way that affords them both dignity and agency. Um, I think it's a really, really great scheme. I'm really keen to see how that pilot goes for them. And I know that the organisation is looking to replicate this around the country. So I'm wishing them all the best with that great project.
0: That is absolutely fantastic, and yeah, such an important thing I think to be able to just, as you say, walk straight in and have the same rights as anybody else to inquire about a house. I think is is fantastic. Uh, brilliant. Yeah, it's been a tough month actually. I'm not going to lie. In terms of coming up with good things, um, it's been a. It's not necessarily been the kind of cheeriest month
1: hard agree and yet there are still organizations out there who are doing extraordinary things i recently put out a call on twitter asking for um candidates for the made a different profile for our october issue we're coming back into print soon um and i got so many responses i'm looking to do something else with it now because there are just so many great examples of people doing good work Mm. um i think as ever it is a privilege to be reporting on this sector it
0: really is. Uh, but take care, stay safe, look after yourself at the moment, guys, because it is tough.
1: And we'll be back with another episode soon. So make sure you subscribe to this, the Third Sector podcast, on your favourite podcast app to be the first to know about it.
0: Thank you to our guests, Daniel Flusky, Adila Worley and Rita Chadder, to the producer, Ben Lonsborough, and to you for listening.